Well, for the summer, we've been looking at trusting God even when life hurts. Today, we're going to look at a woman in the midst of a difficult life. She was an outcast of society. She was rejected and alone. She had made some choices that were wrong, and she was paying deeply for those choices. But she felt disillusioned with her life. Her soul thirsted for something that would truly satisfy. That is, until she met Jesus at the well. I think as we look at God's word today, as we look at the actions of our Jesus, as we look at the heart of Jesus, we will again get further insight to trusting him, even when life hurts. Well, please open your Bibles with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, we're going to start at verse 3 and read through verse 42. This long passage and this amazing account of Jesus and the woman at the well. John chapter 4, starting at verse 3. And the scripture says, He, Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from him himself, as, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one uh, you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. 
Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He said, he told me all that I had ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, how we thank you for your word and this amazing account, this time when Jesus and the disciples and the woman and the town, the people, the truth of this passage. Lord, there is so much here. Help us to, this morning to glean the truth into our hearts so that we might you know, take it in in such a way through your spirit that we would leave here challenged and changed by Jesus Christ himself. In his name we pray, amen. Well, first we see that this woman had a problem. She needed some water. Now we know water is important and necessary for life and she can't just walk over to the faucet in her house, turn the faucet and out come this nice, cool, fresh, clean water. No, like millions still have to do today, she had to go to a public well to gather water. Every day, sometimes multiple times a day, the women of the town would have to go to get water for their families. But this Samaritan woman doesn't just go to any well, but she goes to a well that Jacob, one of the founding patriarchs of the whole Jewish people, had dug. Yes, that Jacob, the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham, the one whose God changed his name to Israel, the father of 12 sons who would become the 12 tribes of Israel. This well had its beginning from the very most important people in all of Jewish history. And at that time, when the woman and Jesus were at that well talking, that well had given fresh water for nearly 2,000 years. 
This is an historic well, and it still exists to this day. Today, you can get a drink from that same well. It actually lies in the midst of a Greek Orthodox church today in Nabulus in the West Bank. Since no one can move a well, this is often considered one of the most authentic sites in the Holy Land. Verse 6 tells us that it was the sixth hour when Jesus rested weary from his journey. That means it's noon. The sun is burning hot and Jesus is weary. Jesus is thirsty. One commentator wrote, it's absolutely crucial to recognize that all the gospel writers were fully aware of the humanity of Jesus. The Christian doctrine of the incarnation is not merely a theological assertion about the deity of Jesus. It is equally a theological assertion about his humanity. Heretical tendencies result when either element is omitted or submerged. Jesus, the divine Son of God. Jesus, the infinite and eternal Word of God. Jesus, the Holy One of God. Jesus, the incarnate God-made flesh, fully human. Jesus became man, willingly subjecting himself to the physical limitations of humanity. He was thirsty. He was weary. I heard a Southern Gospel song recently that was called So Much God. As only a Southern Gospel song can do, they put this truth like this. He was so much man that he slept in a boat, that he was so much God that the winds ceased when he spoke. He was so much man that he wept when Lazarus died, yet he was so much God, Lazarus came forth when he cried. He was so much man that he thirsted at the well, yet he was so much God that he saved her soul from hell. He was so much man that he died upon the tree. He was so much God that he rose in victory. See, we stand today on the biblical historic truth that Jesus was 100% divine, sinless, perfect God. And Jesus was 100% human, subject to the physical limitations of humanity. It was the very humanity of Jesus that brought about this encounter with the woman at the well. It's noon. It's the hot time of the day. See, the normal time for the townswomen to get water would have been early in the morning, before it got hot, before all the other day's chores would have to begin. Then if they needed to, they would go back later in the evening when the cool winds would have begun. But this woman's there at noon, alone. As we get to know our life situation, I think we're meant to understand something here. She's there at noon when nobody else is there, Because she is not welcome to come with the other women. She's a broken, lonely outcast. Inside, she's feeling empty and hollow. One commentator wrote, Here was a woman who lived outside the boundaries of any religious or cultural standards of her day. A string of five husbands, followed by a lover, is certainly not unknown in the 21st century but it's hardly common even in our permissive society with its tolerance for evil. In first century Samaria, such a domestic arrangement was unthinkable. 
She was living a life shunned because she was living a life totally outside of the morally acceptable behavior for her day. Instead of finding love, she faced judgment. Instead of finding help, she faced isolation. Instead of finding forgiveness, she faced rejection. Instead of finding hope, she faced discouragement. Instead of finding dignity, she faced shame. She had given up and she had given in. She just longed to be loved. But instead, she was being used. She was a broken woman, unlike everyone else. When Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her and reached out to her in love. Jesus reaches across the great spiritual divide and offers the woman eternal, life-giving, living water. We can trust Jesus with our greatest hurts because he will cross every boundary to show us his love, to show us himself. But here's a reality check for us. Does your heart melt with compassion for her? Or does your self-righteousness rise up and start to point fingers at her? It's an important question. One in which Jesus dramatically answers, but what about us? How often do we know just a handful of facts about a person's life and then make judgment and assumptions? How often do we look at the outward sin of someone's life and then avoid them? Shouldn't we show compassion? For God knows all of our sins and yet shows us compassion. Shouldn't we show love? For God knows all of our selfish choices yet shows us love. Shouldn't we extend grace? For God knows our self-centered motivations and yet extended us his grace. How did Jesus by his actions answer the question to show compassion or to condemn? What did Jesus do? He didn't reject her. He revealed himself to her. He didn't shun her. He saved her. He talked to her. He didn't ignore her. He didn't just look the other way. He didn't condemn her. So how did Jesus deal with this outcast? How did Jesus deal with this woman who was living the sexually sinful life? He saw her need and he offered her hope and life. He saw the broken person and he loved her in spite of her lifestyle choices. Beloved, that's an example for us. We must be like Christ. Now let me say this clearly. The only one person who ever walked planet earth who could have justly condemned the sinful person didn't. He didn't. The only person who could legitimately have picked up the first stone because he was without sin did not. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Folks, the lead words out of our mouths for the world of lost sinners around us must be Jesus, must be His love, must be His righteousness, and not our self-righteousness. We must be examples of His love and of His grace and of His forgiveness. 
For what amazing love, what amazing grace and forgiveness He has lavished upon us. And it is with that love, it is with that grace, it is with that forgiveness that He has so bountifully given to us that we must give away to the lost world around us. We have no choice as followers of Christ but to follow His example. When not only did Jesus reach across the great spiritual divide, but he also reached across the great cultural divide. Remember verses 7 through 9, where it says, A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? One commentator wrote, The Lord's simple request give me a drink, was in that culture a shocking breach of social customs. Men did not speak with women in public, nor did rabbis associate with immoral women. Men simply did not speak to women in public. Jesus did. See, folks, one of the greatest realities of Jesus and Christianity is the elevation of the status of women to equal to men in all ways. Thousands of years before it was culturally acceptable to treat women as equals, Jesus did. One of the greatest sentences ever written on racial, economic, and gender equality is in the Bible. Galatians 3.28 There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. When the disciples came back after going into town to get lunch, it says in verse 27 that they marveled that Jesus was talking with a woman. You would have thought after this time of being with Jesus, with all the times that he had broken the cultural norms of the day to reach out and to love that they wouldn't have been so surprised. But yet they're still amazed with the dignity that Jesus would show to everyone. To everyone. See, part of this whole encounter is to teach us to love everyone. There is no such thing as an outcast with Christ. Amen. His love is given to all Well, she's not only a woman, she's not only living an alternate lifestyle, she was a Samaritan. Jesus broke a racial divide. The Samaritans were a mixed race, part Jew and part Gentile. They grew out of the Assyrian captivity of the ten northern tribes in 722 BC when many Jews were taken away into captivity and other conquered peoples were relocated into the Jewish lands because of their mixed lineage. They were rejected by the Jews and often thought of as worse than Gentiles. The Samaritans even had established their own temple and religious services on Mount Gerizim, holding to Moses and the first five books of the Bible. Their separate religious practices greatly fanned the fires of prejudice, and there was even on and off again military skirmishes between the Jews and the Samaritans. So intense was a dislike of the Samaritans that some Pharisees prayed that no Samaritan would be raised in the resurrection. When his enemies wanted to call 
Jesus an insulting name. In Acts 8.48, they called him a Samaritan. Our passage clearly tells us in verse 9 that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. The animosity between them was real. So if your scriptures are still open, look at verse 4. Verse 4 says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Well, with the fact of geography, he didn't have to. One commentator wrote, Jesus could have taken one of three possible routes, along the coast, across the Jordan and up through Perea, or straight through Samaria. Orthodox Jews avoided Samaria altogether, usually taking the eastern route around it to get from Judea to Galilee. So he didn't have to go through Samaria because it was the only road to take. He was not compelled by geography to go through Samaria. He was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go through Samaria. Jesus had to pass through Samaria because he had an appointment. He had a divine appointment with a woman at Jacob's well. See, Jesus was always fulfilling his God-given mission to seek and to save the lost. Not only did Jesus talk to to this Samaritan woman, not only did he drink from her water jar, but verse 40 tells us that he stayed in their town for two days. The Samaritans welcomed Jesus, the Jewish rabbi, into their town, into their lives. And Jesus honored them by staying with them, and he loved them, and he accepted them, and he shared with them the truth that he is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Jesus broke down spiritual, cultural, and racial barriers to tell them the gospel, the good news that he was the Messiah. Folks, he's still doing that today. Today, Jesus is still breaking down spiritual barriers and cultural barriers and racial barriers so that everyone can hear the good news of him, that he's the savior of the world. Look again there at what Jesus said in our passage in verse 35. Do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, he tells his disciples, look and lift up your eyes. And see the fields white for the harvest. This is what I envision happening at this moment. As a woman has already gone back to the city, right? She's already told the city, the people are coming out to Jesus. As the people are coming out to Jesus and the disciples are standing there, Jesus tells them to look. The fields are white for the harvest. Here come the people. Here comes the harvest. Look. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering the fruit for eternal life so the sower and reaper may rejoice together. Jesus is telling us to look. Jesus is telling us to lift up our eyes, to get our focus off the earth and its priorities and to lift up our focus onto his kingdom and onto his priorities. He tells us to look into fields, to look in our communities, to look into our neighborhoods, to look into our families, to lift up our eyes to look at those lost around us from all social and, and racial and lifestyle backgrounds and to see that the harvest is ripe, ready for the reaping. Jesus right now is harvesting stole, souls throughout our community. He is right now calling people to himself. He's the Lord of the harvest. The sower and the reaper rejoice together. For though they did their part, it was God alone 
Who can bring about the harvest? We sow with hope, knowing that it's only God who can take his word through the Holy Spirit and bring about a harvest. And we, we reap in humility because we know it's only God who can take his word and through the Holy Spirit gather fruit for eternal life. When Jesus saw the woman at the well, his heart was filled with compassion for her. Matthew 9, 35-38 says, And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, the question isn't, is the harvest plentiful? The question isn't, are the fields white for the harvest? The question isn't, does Jesus love and have compassion for the lost souls of our community, of our world? None of that is up for debate. All of that is fact. The harvest is plentiful. The fields are ready. And Jesus' love and compassion, Jesus' sacrifice and salvation are available for all people. Those are the facts. The unanswered question in our story in John 4, or here in Matthew chapter 9, is us. Are we laborers in God's harvest? Are we laboring for God's purposes? God has done all the work. He's prepared the harvest for the reaping. He's provided the only means for the reaping through his son, his sacrifice, his death, his resurrection. So the question remains for us, are you a laborer in God's harvest? So let's take a moment now. Let's glean some important pointers here to help us in laborers of the harvest as we learn from Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well. What are some pointers for us? One is to accept the people where they are. Expect people who do not know Christ to live like they do not know Christ. Expect people who do not know Christ to live like they don't know Christ. Expect it. And love them. Love them not just for what they can become, but love them for who they are now, a precious image bearer of our God with the full dignity and worth of their creator stamped eternally on their souls. Just like Jesus did with that woman at the well. Jesus broke through the barriers and simply talked to her. He treated her with with dignity and worth that the Godhead had given her. Accept people where they are. Two, point number two, be vulnerable. Allow the person you are ministering to to help you. Jesus asked for some water to drink. That spawned the whole conversation. Be transparent. If all everyone ever sees of you is a picture of a self-righteous Christian, they're not going to be drawn to God. They're not going to, they're going to see God. They're going to see you instead. They're going to think that it's all about being good and about doing good things. And they're going to think, I, I can't do that. 
I can't be like that. God must not want me. Facades are fake, and they push people away. We need to take the risk to be transparent, to be vulnerable. Don't start off with the idea that you want people to become like you, but rather start off with the idea, the truth, that you're just like them, a sinner in need of a Savior. Oh, beloved, we need to say the gospel to ourselves over and over to ourselves, day in and day out. I'm a sinner, saved by grace, saved by Jesus. Point number three, don't forget the bad news of the good news of the gospel. What's the bad news? We're all sinners. See, Jesus opened up the truth of the good news of the gospel by exposing her sin of her great need for salvation. The woman and the townspeople didn't just need someone to come up and accept them and then tell them, okay, everything's okay now. Everything's going to be all right. They needed to know the truth. And the truth is, is that sin, our sin, separates us from God. It's through repentance and rejection of our sins, combined with our placing our face in the, in the truth that, that Jesus died for our sin and rose again. That's how we are saved. If you haven't come to grips with the truth of the bad news, with the truth of the reality of the sinfulness of your own heart, then you haven't gone down the path of salvation. As laborers in the harvest field, we have to share the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That our sins have earned for us death, physical death and spiritual death, separation from God. Jesus wasn't being cruel when he exposed the the sin of the woman. He was being helpful, insightful, She had to first see herself correctly before she was able to see Jesus correctly. The same is true for us. As we share Christ, we have to first help them to see themselves correctly before they're able to see Jesus correctly. You have to first understand that you're a sinner before you're able to see and accept and believe that Jesus is your Savior dying on the cross as a substitute for our sins. So often heaven is dangled about as a lure. Don't you just want to go to heaven? Who would say no to that? Well, when we just do that, folks, we have to realize that salvation is first and foremost not just a ticket to heaven. It is first and foremost the transformation of our lives now into living a life of faith that lives out and worships Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior now. The gospel is not just some future salvation to heaven, but it's a present transformation of our lives, becoming fully devoted followers of Christ right now. Our faith will never be real Our lives will never be transformed into true followers of Christ if we don't first accept the fact that it was our sin, it was your sin, it was my sin that was separating me from a holy, righteous, and just God. And it was Jesus' death 
on the cross as our substitute, taking the penalty for our sin, taking God's wrath for our sin that opens up for us life, eternal life, abundant life, real life now. We have to be honest with them. Like Jesus was honest with the woman. We have to tell them the bad news with the good news. Another helpful point here is to allow progression in their thinking. Did you notice when Jesus was sitting there with there, he didn't say, you know, I'm thirsty. Can you give me something to drink? And oh, by the way, I'm the Messiah. Right? He didn't do that. He allowed her to think. It was a progression in her understanding. He gave her information so that she could start to put things together in her mind. See, sharing the gospel is not some kind of sales pitch. It's most often a process of keeping on sowing the seed, of keeping on helping them to understand and think through the process of understanding who Jesus is and who they are. Notice the progression in the woman's thinking. She goes first recognizing that Jesus is a Jew to understanding that when he offers her living water, that spiritual water is better than the water from Jacob's well. Then she goes to understanding that Jesus is greater than Jacob. We see in verse 19, she calls him a prophet. And then she finally comes to see Jesus as as the Christ, as her Messiah, as her Savior. She tells the townspeople, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then, folks, in one of the most amazingly stunning moments in all of Scripture, Jesus self-discloses to this woman the very first person that Jesus clearly tells that he is the Messiah is this Samaritan woman. The outcast. The sinner. The broken life. All the barriers. This was the first person that Jesus clearly reveals himself as the Messiah. There is no doubting the amazing grace of our God. It's not by accident that this is the first revelation to come about with with someone so unlikely. Jesus purposely did this so that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt that the free gift of his salvation is available to everyone. You and me. See, the main point of the passage is that and the main point of our church, and the main point of our lives, is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the one. The gift that Jesus offered that broken down woman was living water. It's the same gift that he's offering each one of us here today. Jesus said that his water would well up within her to eternal life. The water from her well had to be retrieved by hard work. You had to earn her water. And even if you drank well from, you know, water from that well, you'd only be thirsty again. No amount of drinking would ever satisfy one's thirst from that well. She knew she was thirsty. She knew her soul was parched. And she wanted to know true satisfaction for the thirst of her soul. Her brokenness had only left her soul more parched for something that could really satisfy 
See, no amount of, of the world can ever satisfy us. Our souls will remain dry and desperate for true fulfillment. This woman was drinking water, worldly water, that never satisfied. So are those around us. They're drinking of this world, and yet their souls are parched, searching for something real, something genuine, something that can satisfy one's soul. This world offers so many substitute waters for the soul, but there's not a one, not a one that can ever satisfy one's soul. Perhaps today you're drinking from a substitute water source. You're trying to satisfy your soul's longing for God with something other than God. It can't be done. It's impossible. You will always be left wanting. One commentator said, people who depend only on physical water will be continuously thirsty, either ignorant or resentful of their God-implanted need for spiritual water. They will always look in the wrong direction for satisfaction. Jeremiah had proclaimed this truth centuries earlier. In chapter 2, verse 13, he wrote, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Have you dug your own well? Have you created your own cistern only to find that it's broken? Only to find that it can't hold water? Only to find that it's useless and will not satisfy? Today, Jesus offers living water. It's not water that we can earn. It's not water that we can labor for. It's not water that we can pull up and drink for ourselves. It's not water that's drawn from any man-made or earthly storehouse. It is spiritual water. It is living water. And it's the only water that can satisfy our souls. The living water is a picture of the Spirit of God applying the salvation that Jesus alone can bring through His boundless love and grace. Jesus said to this woman, Jesus saying to us, Don't fill your soul with the stagnant water this world has to offer. It will only leave your life desperate and dry. Instead, come to me. Drink of my living water, the only soul-quenching water. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame, and nothing satisfying there I found. But to the blessed cross of Christ I came where springs of living water did abound. If you've never drunk of the water, come to Jesus today for he alone can bring you the real soul satisfaction and joy of life. If Jesus can give this broken woman living water, he can give it to you. I challenge you to take the risk We hear the message after message after message our world keeps telling us that it knows how to bring satisfaction to our souls, but it can't. It never comes. So take the risk today. Risk your soul on Jesus and finding your life's fulfillment in Christ alone. For only in Jesus can your soul find satisfaction. Pray this morning. Pray and receive Jesus today, your Lord. 
and Savior. Well, perhaps today you've tasted of that water, of that living water. Well, then today rejoice. Rejoice. And then lift up your eyes and look. The fields are white for the harvest. There are others around you that need the same water. See, the question isn't, is the harvest plentiful? The question isn't, are the fields wide and ready for the harvest? The question isn't, did Jesus love and have compassion for the lost? Has Jesus paid for the sin with his life and resurrection for the lost of our community? Those aren't the questions. The question is us. Are you laboring in a harvest field? Are your eyes focused on what Jesus was pleading with his disciples to focus on people in need of him? Laborers in his harvest. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for the amazing truth of your word and how it challenges us today right where we're at, each one of us in this room. Perhaps you're here today and you've been trying all the, the, the water this world has to offer. You've dug your own wells and you're, and you're finding them useless and broken. Well, today come to Jesus. Today come to his living water. Today's your day to right now in prayer, right now as we're praying, you can pray acknowledging your sin, acknowledging your need of Jesus Christ. In humility, understanding and accepting the reality that your sin has separated you from God. And then believe. Believe right now. Say it in your own words to Jesus. Jesus, I believe. I believe you died for my sins on the cross. These sins that have separated from me from you, you died for them, to forgive them. And then confess. Confess him as your Lord and Savior of your life. Confess him. Proclaiming him from your heart that he's the one. He's your Messiah. And Lord, I pray for those believers here today that their souls might be requenched with the truth of the living water to such an extent that they can't help but being a well that bubbles over and overflows to those around. That we might share the truth of the only one who's given us life and love, hope and salvation, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.